Uh, years ago, while I was in seminary, I was assigned to help a church in Michigan for an entire summer. I was up there for about uh, 10 or 11, 12 weeks, and I had to do everything that they could possibly imagine a pastor in the future doing. I went to every committee meeting, I went to every coffee hour, I helped lead vacation Bible school, I went to the hospital, I helped in uh, funerals, I even helped in a wedding. And the longer I was there, the more I realized, well, Taylor's kind of done everything, but there's one thing you haven't done yet. You haven't preached. I said, yeah, but preaching's only part of the gig, you know? That's not the end all be all. I'll be okay if I don't preach. And they said, no, we need to get you scheduled. But the thing is, this church was massive. It took up an entire city block. They had a thousand people in worship every Sunday. They had everything planned so much that they knew who was going to preach on what Sunday and what the text was going to be and what the theme was going to be in all the hymns six months in advance. Six months in advance. So they had to really move some pieces around to fit me in that summer. And they worked and they worked and they worked and they finally figured it out and they said, you're going to preach on the first Sunday of July. So it's the first Sunday of July, which means it's also Communion Sunday. Because in a good Baptist church, you have communion on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, so I went to church. I, I, I stood up in the pulpit. And I, I preached an okay sermon. And I came down uh, with the pastor, and we started to pray over communion. Pause. As I said before, this church had everything so planned, so thought out, six months in advance... They also have all of the metrics and the data on every worship service going back 10 years. They could tell you on average, regardless of the Sunday, that we should expect X number of people plus or minus 10. They knew how many parking attendants they'd have to have on any given Sunday. They knew how many bulletins to print. There were never too many extra. They had it down to an exact science. And so they knew ahead of time It's the first Sunday of July. On average, over the last 10 years, this is the number of people we've had in church. Their communion was a little different than ours. When we have communion here at Cokesbury, I take a loaf of bread, I I break it, and as you come forward, I take a piece of bread and I I hand it to you. It's called intinction. At this church in Michigan, they baked bread and they pre-cut every single slice of bread so that it was about an inch by an inch squared. And they didn't just cut them, they counted them to know exactly how many pieces of bread they needed to have, plus or minus ten, for every first Sunday of the month. And because they had so many people, there were like six stations, you know, in the back, on the sides, in the front, and there would be a sweet person holding a basket full of bread. And they were not allowed to touch anything. They had to just sit there and smile and say, this is God for you, this is God for you. And so we were going through the communion service, and people were lining up, and I'm not, I'm not very good at math, but I'm good enough to know, when I was looking down at my basket, and I saw the number of people, I realized, we're going to run out of bread, <laughs> quickly. See, what nobody thought about was, I was the shiny new toy. I was the intern for the summer. And even though it was the first Sunday of July, and not many people usually came, they wanted to hear me. They were tired of listening to the guy they'd had for 12 years every Sunday. They wanted to hear a new sermon. And so they all showed up. But because they all showed up, we ran out of bread. So I did what any good intern would do. I walked back up to the altar. And I grabbed that giant loaf of bread we just prayed over. And I ripped that sucker in half. 
And I stood out in the middle of the church and I started handing pieces of bread to people. And very quickly, one of the ladies came up. She tapped me on the shoulder and she whispered in my ear, Are you even allowed to do that? (laughs) And I thought about that a lot. Are you even allowed to do that? There was no life in that communion service. It was so studied, so analyzed, so thought through that it was no longer thoughtful. They left no room for the Spirit. We know how many people are going to show up. We know even more than that. We know what they need to hear in six months from now. I'm going to write my sermon now for six months. I'm going to write my sermon now for October. That's what that church was like. Are you even allowed to do this? Paul says, I handed over to you what was given to me. He writes this letter to a church in a place called Corinth. He says, I gave you what was given to me. That on the night in which he gave himself up, Jesus took a loaf of bread, he took a cup, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Memory is a really funny thing. Memory connects us to the past in both good ways and bad, because we can reflect on all those really negative moments. We can remember those horrible things that have been said to us, those times we were bullied, those times we were belittled. But we can also remember all the joyful things that have happened to us. Memory can both hurt us, and it can also sort of heal us. But we cannot escape our memories, because memory really is everything. Paul, he cherished this memory that he had received. And he was concerned that the Corinthians had forgotten what they received from him. He was writing to them about their need to do this thing, to do communion with faith, with love, with intention. Like counting the number of slices of bread, they no longer took communion in such a way that it gave them new life. They were doing this meal without even remembering why. On any given Sunday, frankly, on any given Thursday night, at best, the church is called to remember. Remember what God did for God's people. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples. Remember how God has showed up in your life. And remembering our memories, it's really strange and weird, particularly in this weird time that we're living in. Many families and groups are separated in ways that were impossible in the past. We're separated by geography or estrangement and even now through dementia. And because of all these weird divisions, the art of memory sharing, it's dying. Memory is the glue that holds us together. Without our memories, we don't know who we are. I've been a pastor for five years, which is long enough in the church today that I've lost count of how many funerals I've had to do. Uh, If if you haven't heard about this before, I don't mean for this to sound terribly depressing, but uh, in in the church we, we talk about a death tsunami that has already arrived and it will continue to arrive. There are so many people in the church who are above a certain age that will not be with the church in 10 years. Because no one makes it out of life alive. I have had to do more funerals than I can count. 
And preparing funerals as a pastor is a weird thing because like that communion service, it's not something you learn about in seminary. They don't teach you how to sit down with a family that's grieving. They don't tell you what to say or what to do. But you have to show up. And over all the funerals I've done, I've noticed that there's always two things that happen no matter what. No matter what, no matter the circumstance, no matter how old the person was or where they lived or what culture they were from, there's something that happens, two things, every time I prepare a funeral. Someone in the room, while listening to a story, will say, I never knew that. I'll ask these questions to get a conversation going. Tell me what your mother loved to do. Tell me a story about your grandmother that makes you laugh. Where was your father born? Just these kind of questions to get conversation going. And someone invariably says, I never knew that about my mom or my brother or my son or my spouse. Children will make a comment about a parent or a brother will make a comment about a sister or a wife makes a comment about her husband and someone in the room is shamed because they realized they didn't know the person as well as they thought they did. I never knew that. It's either we don't remember these things about the people we love, or that memory was never shared with everybody else. It is a difficult and troubling moment for families to process in their office when they realize they're about to bury someone in the ground that they didn't know as well as they thought, and there's nothing they can do about it anymore. But in addition to the I never knew that comment, there's another one I always hear. It has happened 99.9% of the time when I say, tell me a funny story. Tell me a story about the person that has died that always makes you laugh. And 99.9% of the time, the story they tell took place around a dinner table. I don't know what it is exactly. But there is something mysterious and wonderful and strange about dinner tables. Perhaps it's that one place where entire families will actually get together for a finite period of time. Maybe it's the sharing of food that compels us to share stories. Maybe it's the wine that gets passed around sometimes. At the table, memory is shared, unlike anywhere else. As disciples, we believe that whenever we gather at this table, frankly, whenever we gather at any table, that Jesus is with us breaking bread. That Jesus is pouring our wine so that we can be his body redeemed by his blood. When we break bread, when we pass the cup, when we tell stories, we are connected with signs and symbols that tell us who we are and whose we are. It's around a table, particularly one like this, that things change. The number of slices that we preordained, the comments like, I never knew that about somebody, those things disappear. Because the table changes everything. At the table, there are signs and symbols of memory everywhere. In a cup of water, we remember our own baptisms. We remember all the great stories of Scripture where God's people were delivered through water. When we see bread, we remember that God brought manna down from the heaven. When we see wine, we remember Jesus at the wedding of Cana of Galilee where he turns water into wine. If you're at the table and you see someone wearing a wedding ring, you remember the promise that not only you or someone made to a spouse, but that God made with us. 
at the table, all of these ordinary things, they become extraordinary. We break bread. We share the cup. We remember. We retell the story of Jesus' death, his resurrection. But it's more than just passing on a story. It's a mystery. I don't know how fashionable some of you are, but for a long time, in fact, it still happens today, that if you run into a Christian, there's a pretty good chance that if you look at his or her wrist, you'll find a bracelet with an acronym on it. And the acronym is WWJD. What would Jesus do? Are you all familiar with these? What would Jesus do? And it's used like this sort of special talisman. We're told to put it on our wrist so that before we make a moral choice, we will think, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? It's that last chance for us to rethink what we're about to do. And for as helpful as the WWJD can be, I think it's also, I think it's also really problematic. It's problematic because at the end of the day, we can't do what Jesus did. That's kind of the whole point of faith. We don't get to contemplate what Jesus would do in a certain situation. It doesn't really help us to think, well, what would Jesus do if he had a YouTube account? What would Jesus do if he had Twitter? That's not a helpful conversation. Because we can't do what Jesus did. Instead, there's a much better question. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do? Because that question and the struggle to answer it is at the heart of the mystery we call faith. This night, tomorrow night, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, every Sunday, they're not about what we should do. It's about what Christ did for us. Everything we do as Christians, it is predicated on a story that was given to us, handed to us, a story about a poor Jewish rabbi named Jesus. It's Jesus' story, not ours. It's Jesus' that re-narrates and re-navigates everything we think we know about this world we live in. We repeat the story again and again and again and again, not only because it reinforces our memory, but because it, it becomes a proclamation. It is our witness. We are not here tonight for ourselves. We are here because at this table, we discover God's story for us. Not the other way around. So the question is, what did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do, what did Jesus do? And this is what he did. On his final night, he sat down with some friends. They were having Passover. A time for the Jews to remember all that God had done for them. And they were sitting around this table thinking about all that had happened over the last three years of Jesus' ministry, probably thinking about all the things that they could still do, all the glory days ahead. And while they're all talking, Jesus becomes quite silent until he holds the loaf of bread. Very quietly, quietly he gave thanks to God the Father, and he broke the bread. And he said to his friends, this is my body. I'm giving this for you. And we don't have details about what happened next, but I can imagine some of them were quite surprised. What in the world do you mean, this is my body? It's a loaf of bread. 
But undoubtedly, they passed around that loaf, and they all partook in his body. And before the supper was over, Jesus took another cup, and he filled it with wine. We're good Methodists. We don't use wine. We use Welsh's grape juice, which I also have up here. But on the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took some wine. He put it in a cup. And he said, my friends, this, this is my blood. I'm giving it for you. Do this in memory of me. And again, we don't have details about what happened. We don't know if they all took a small little piece of bread and dipped it in the cup and ate it and sat down and prayed silently like we do on Sundays and like we do on Thursday nights sometimes. But we know that this thing, this story, this act was so important that the very first Christians, when we read about what they did, it said they broke bread together. They devoted themselves to prayer and they shared everything in common. That is the heart of the early church. At our best, that's what we still do too. We get together to pray, to feast, and to remember. Not what we can do, but what God did and what God can do for us. So in hopes that you might remember the story that was handed to Paul, handed to Corinth, and handed to you. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.